my wedding day was very stressful and well I was going to be raped that night I didn't know that at the time but that's really what it is because I'm forced to have sex with this man who I actually wasn't attracted to actually we we had nothing to say to each other Andrew we had nothing you have to do this you don't have a choice because what you're told is that the marriage is only consummated if you have sex Hi again, I'm back for the third installment of the Andrew Gold podcast and today I speak with Emily Green who grew up in the Hasidic community, an extreme branch of the Orthodox or Haredi Jews. She's since set up Gesher EU, a European equivalent of the New York-based Footsteps, an organisation that helps people leave the sect and start a new life. If you're interested or if you are in such a community and have managed to use a secret computer with internet access, as Emily did herself, make sure to get in touch with her on gesheu.org.uk. That's G-E-S-H-E-R-E-U dot org dot UK. So you know, next week I've got another riveting guest in the form of Justin Hall, the world's first ever blogger. So you could say he was patient zero in our social influenza. He had a fist fight with Kurt Vonnegut, posted the first ever dick pic, and had an online breakdown after everything spiralled out of control. So do subscribe to the channel to make sure you don't miss it. For now, though, Emily tells me what she thought of the Netflix sensation Unorthodox, which portrayed a Hasidic Jew escaping Brooklyn, New York, for Berlin, where I now live. If you haven't seen it, I recommend you do, but don't worry, there are no spoilers and we don't talk about it for too long. I thought they did a pretty good job, you know, doing it through the Yiddish and the actors. I think the producers really worked hard to get it really spot on. Um, and, and they did to a large extent, um, was brilliant for me to be able to kind of say to people like actually at work and they were like, oh, we watched Unorthodox and it's like, right, okay, so this is it. Like, I don't have to explain anymore. <laughs> it's like, well, it's there, it's out there. What stood out to you mostly uh, that they really got spot on? I think the meeting between um, Yankee and Esty the first time, the, the kind of the awkwardness, the, the, the atmosphere, um, the typical kind of conversation, was so brilliant, it was accurate. It was like, you know, reliving my own experience yeah. um, when, I, when I met my husband then for the first time. Wow. Um, so in some ways quite therapeutic, like, okay, it's like a kind of, you know, you at the time I was young, you don't know what's happening. You just go along with it and you feel all these different feelings and to see it out there, it's like, okay, I'm not crazy. This is real. This is, you know, it's because it is weird and it's not normal. Yeah. and looking watching it as on the eyes of a secular person i can see now how bizarre it is uh, i think one of the interesting things for me was that because i'm i'm from a very secular jewish family as well but i had a bar mitzvah i learned to read hebrew and a few things like that and i think a lot of people uh some friends said to me you know is that what your childhood was like and i had to explain the difference and i never met anybody in that community i suppose because it is so closed off what is it like for the very, very few people in your situation who have actually been in it, what is it like around the, the TV room? My older children remember when I was still living in the community um, and seeing it on the TV, it's like, oh my God, what, what is this? This is weird, you know? Um, but then obviously, you know, they realized what this is um, and they got quite interested in it. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was it was a very strange experience. So did you stop it sometimes and say to your daughters like, oh my god, this is like this or that, or were there emotional parts for you bringing you back to something that I suppose had you have mixed memories of? 
Yeah, I mean, it was a bit strange. Like, I think the intimate scenes where Yankee and Esty have sex, <laughs> and I think the one with the mikvah, um, and I think there's a shock, you know, from what I was like, you did that? Like, 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 it was like, I think a, a revelation. Um, and uh, it was like, yes. And it was like, wow, okay. Yeah. For our listeners who don't know, could you explain what a mikvah is? When a woman has her period, she has to separate from her husband physically. So no physical contact is allowed at all. She has to check twice a day using these cloths and you have to insert it into your vagina, really mm. awful, um, to check that you're clean, you know, that you're not bleeding. Um, and then after seven days, when you have kind of, you know, that evidence that you've not, you know, you've, your period yeah. is completely finished, you um, have to go to this place called the mikvah, which is like a ritual bath. You go in there after dark, you spend about an hour um, bathing yourself. Mm. Um, and then you you dip in there, you make a blessing, and then you have this woman who, the mikvah attendant who watches you, which is extremely uncomfortable and violating, yeah. which I absolutely couldn't stand. And it's absolutely awful. Um, and I think that's something, actually I'm thinking about it, is not okay especially for Jewish girls who are raised their whole life to cover their bodies and then you're suddenly exposed and forced to do this on a monthly basis, it's awful. Um, but the whole thing, they sell it to you as like it's a spiritually cleansing experience. And then once you've done that, you can come home to your husband and you're like pure and you're kind of like, you know, you're allowed to resume having sex and, you know, you can be intimate yeah. with each other. I suppose it must make you feel ashamed of your body and dirty. In the rest of your life as women, you're taught to be ashamed in the sense that you always have to cover your body, you know, wearing the wig and the sleeves and the, you know, you've got to wear those lengths, the, the, the necklines and the hemlines and all of it. Um, as you saw Esty when she was still in Brooklyn. Mm. And then suddenly you're forced to completely naked in front of this stranger. So it all feels, it's really um, psychologically and emotionally damaging. For, for somebody who's secular and doesn't know anything about uh, that environment, how would you describe your childhood? When I was 15, I picked up a code of Jewish law in English mm. that was in my parents' house. Now, this is these kind of laws are only shared with women once, literally a couple of weeks before the wedding. Yeah. You're not told, we're not given sex education. Um, those, that kind of information is completely taken out. It's considered inappropriate. So I was just reading it as a curious teenager. And then my mum finds me reading it and she goes completely ballistic with me. She's like furious, like, how dare you be reading this? And I was thinking, well, it's a code of Jewish law. Like you would think that, you know, at school we did, we studied Jewish law. So um, happened to be I was reading those chapters. So what's wrong with that? And then, of course, because it's forbidden, I'm going to continue to read it. And when I'm reading, I'm thinking, oh, my God, no, no, no. This is something they did 100 years ago. Like, really? Like you're starting to think like, so my mum does this? Yeah. Other than that, growing up. Um, you know, you're like any kid, you just accept things that are normal. Like, you know, this is how we dress. This is, you're also taught how proud and how amazing it is to be, you know, where we're the chosen nation and God loves you and all that. So a lot of that kind of, you know, and you believe in it. So I think that wasn't, I think, you know, that was okay. Like I never questioned anything, I think till I was about 18 or 19 when I came close to having an arranged marriage. Um, um, I think that's when it kind of started to kind of... Yeah, when you said that your mother caught you reading and said, don't read, and it made you want to read more. I suppose you, you had a rebellious streak. Would that be fair? 
I suppose without realizing I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't consider myself rebellious then. Um, but maybe just curiosity. Looking back now, I know that there was lots of things I was deprived of, like not having, watching TV or not, um, lots of books. I couldn't go to the library. Um, you know, lots of literature out there that like I'm an English teacher now and I do loads of literature and to think that I've missed out on a whole childhood of not reading. But you know, again, you don't know what you're missing really. Is there a sense from, from some of the children, are they seeing other children who are allowed to play certain games or read books, as you say? Is there any sort of, oh, why don't we get to do some of that? Not really. There's not, not, not for me. I mean, some people might grow up thinking that, but you don't really think about it too much. And what you're kind of brainwashed to believe that your life is kind of like we're special we're we're better than everyone else mm. and you're privileged to be living this lifestyle and you're how lucky we are so you do kind of buy that as a mm. child and because everybody around you is telling you that it's really interesting you say that because i don't mean to be uh rude when i say this but a, a lot of those people do come across to people outside of the group as a little bit arrogant sometimes just the the, the movements and the, and i always wondered maybe that's just how people how they walk and talk and things but from what you're saying it's there, there is gen, genuinely a little bit of arrogance yeah i mean that's 100 percent. if you read the prayers or some of it's all about we're the chosen nation we're better than them we're better than the non-jews mm. and I, I have non-jewish colleagues now and i just laugh when i think about that narrative because it just doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. You know, when you're a child and you buy it, you buy it. Tell me about the language as well, because that's an interesting one. Because it, I, I can't think of anything stranger for me than the idea of somebody growing up either in Brooklyn or uh, in North London and not having a good grasp of English. Is it? Is it? There's a difference between the men and the, the boys and the girls. Is there in learning English? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're spot on. Um, because the boys, literally, especially the Hasidic boys, their education is limited to about two hours a day, roughly. Um, and then their, edu their secular education generally stops completely at around age 11, 12. So most of them don't have more than a basic primary school level of mm. uh, reading or maths, writing and maths. Mm. Um, some of the boys will talk English at home, so their spoken language might be a bit better. Mm. So my brothers, for example, they've got an accent, like they sound like foreigners. Women, basically, we did our GCSEs, we didn't do A-levels, really. Sometimes some of the students went on to do A-levels independently, but it wasn't encouraged. Like when I was 16, I left school, we went to what was called a seminary, where mostly a lot of the lessons were around kind of preparing us basically for an arranged marriage mm. and to live a very holy kind of Jewish life. So the laws around practical aspects of running a Jewish home, like the dietary laws, etc. Um, and that's it. Like, you know, so for me personally, I see I was lucky to have a career. I got my GCSEs, but then everything else after that I had to do independently. So um, let me be clear, the girls by no means are they getting a full secular education. Most of the girls don't have A-levels, certainly are not allowed to go to a university. Yeah, it does. It sounds so restrictive. And, and there's a Yiddish word, isn't there, for the person who sets you up to get married? The shatchan, yes. Um, so when, like when I reached the age of about 18, 19, my parents will get in touch with these like known men or women in the community who are known to, you know, be those matchmakers and they will try to find a suitable family. Um, and if they have a boy or girl of the same age, they will suggest that match to the parents. Um, usually the boy and girl will know nothing about it at that stage. In my case, 
they were looking for a boy. My father wanted somebody who was very devout. Yeah. He would go to the yeshiva where the boys are and interview him as such. And it wouldn't be an interview about, are you going to be a good husband for my daughter? It would be an interview around how, you know, um, how good is his Jewish learning and knowledge, really. Yeah. They booked an engagement hall. And just bear in mind, I hadn't even met him. I didn't even know who he was. The next week I met his parents. The boy's mother, you know, he was she was having a discussion, just sort of chit-chat. The men were making financial arrangements mm. about the money, who's paying for what. Mm. And then the next week I met my husband-to-be. Um, I met him on a Sunday night and then we got engaged on Monday night. Um, and that was it. Do you feel like property in those moments? Well, you don't know what you feel really because, you know, looking back, I would say yes, but at the time, mm. No, because you're just, there's a lot of pressure to get engaged at a young age because all your friends are getting engaged. And if you huh. don't get it, like if you're not married by the age of 22, 23, you're already considered like, considered like an old maid, like, you know, what's wrong with you? And you're an outcast and people feel sorry for you. Yeah. Um, and they think they've got a problem. Um, so you want to fit in. So you want to get married. So there's something exciting about it. And obviously you've never met a boy and, you know, this like marriage, you know, you kind of every girl's dream. So you kind of, hope and wish you know yeah. so somewhere deep down there's this sense of like oh my god i actually don't even know this man and when you don't really pay attention because you kind of you also want to please everyone around you i don't want to sound glib at all but was was were you hoping he would be attractive um mm. yeah no 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 it's interesting because i was telling my daughter the other day because she's um 16 and she's got you know typical teenager boys and girls and all the politics that go in with it yeah. and figuring out who you like and who you don't like yeah. um and she was asking me you know mom you know and i was like well the first man and te- you know i didn't even talk to my teenage cousins did you really not you really didn't you weren't allowed to talk to boys at all no, boy, you know, like if I'd go to my grandma's house, which is maybe where I'd meet them, it would be like, they'd just look down at the floor. Um, Hasidic boys particularly are very much brainwashed, like not to look at women, not to have any interactions with women, because God forbid they're going to be attracted to one. And then yeah. that, you know, obviously any sex, any kind of interactions with women outside of marriage is completely a no-no. So, so your first conversation with your a husband-to-be at that point who you were going to get engaged with the following day, how did you feel? You feel like it's not in your, your hands even, like it's not even in your control. So you're kind of looking for things that like, hopefully you'll feel like I can live with this man. Mm. The first conversation was terrible. It was just very tense, very similar to like Esty and Yankee. Second day, second meeting was slightly more relaxed, but then at the end of it, he's proposing to me and you're like thinking, I remember just like, well, what am I supposed to say? I mean, my grandma, my aunt, everyone's out there waiting for that, like, mm. You know, they've got all the, they're, they're waiting, like it's done. For them, it's done. They told the whole family that I'm getting engaged that day. They're, they're, it was all sorted. So, you know, and, and it was almost like, my, and I, I said to my dad, I said to him, I said, I maybe he's a nice boy. I, I just don't know. And I was like, I, I don't feel like I'm ready to live with him. My dad was like, oh, everybody goes through it. Don't worry, it'll be fine. Don't worry, you'll get used to it. It'll be all right. So, and then my mum was like, look, you have to understand, you're only going to get older. He's a great boy. You're not going to get anything better. So to me, it was like, almost like, well, I'm going to turn this down. Who's to say the next one is going to be any better? Like what, what, I didn't feel I had any connection with him at all. I had no desire or interest. I remember he tried to call me during my engagement 
I, I just used to pretend I'm sleeping or I never came to the, I wasn't really interested. He, he tried to he tried to call you. Do you do, are phones allowed and 3G and everything? No, it was through the house line. Mm. All he would do was give me a, a Torah, like a sort of Torah thought, like something that he'd learned that week. So he'd call up and say, say just some interesting thing he'd learned from the Bible, like a love, like almost like a love extension. No love, nothing about love. Yeah. So you then, how long between the engagement and the marriage? Six months for me. And so those six months, were you starting to turn things over in your mind or were you calm? It was like this sense of like going on a train that you can't get off. Like you're just going on this journey and you just hope for the best, really. My wedding day was very stressful. And like as the wedding kind of went on, it was like this sense of like, now I can almost say to people like, well, I was going to be raped that night. I didn't know that at the time, but that's really what it is because I'm forced to have sex with this man who I actually wasn't attracted to. Actually, we we had nothing to say to each other, Andrew. We had nothing. It's all, you know, prescribed. You have to do this. You don't have a choice because what you're told is that the marriage is only consummated if you have sex. So it's like this pressure, like, because otherwise you're not allowed to be alone in a, in a house with him. So it's kind of this, like, part of the Jewish right. marriage. You have to, the completion of the marriage happens when the man and woman have relations so you have to do it is that that evening yes it's like the end of the wedding everybody knows what's about to happen and you go off and i remember at the end of the wedding standing outside the hall and wishing that i could just go to somebody's car and be whisked away far far away see when you're going to be raped that's going to that's how you're going to feel no daughter of mine is going to ever experience that that's just not going to happen you know like i'm going to do everything to prevent that um because i think that's that's you know that's institutional rape um, and, you know, it's almost a sense of like, all these people are around and they all know, they're all colluding in it. It felt like it feels like it, yeah. but no, it's all very solemn and nobody, nobody um, talks about it. Like it's not, it's not discussed. Oh my word. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. 
Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. When did you start to think back and think, I was raped? I read The Handmaid's Tale recently. I teach English A-level um, and um, there's chapter 16 and it's called The Ceremony where mm. the handmaid is forced to have sex with a commander. Yeah. And you read that chapter and I read that chapter to my students and I think, yeah, Margaret Atwood's got it right. This is what it's like. You know, when you get a perspective of what happens in the outside world and what's normal, you... I think that's when you can kind of start expressing, oh, okay. I'm so sorry that you went through that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's um, which is why I'm kind of quite passionate about speaking up about these things, because I feel like I didn't have that voice. Yeah. And I had to be, I had to kind of, I was forced to do things I didn't want to. I just was just reading this morning on Twitter, there's been a lot of um, criticism on unorthodox, going back to that, where people are saying, Jewish people, oh, you know, we need to make another unorthodox which shows the Haredi community in a positive light because this is only going to encourage anti-Semitism. And there's been a lot of backlash even from the Haredi community and some people would see us as like completely deranged and crazy because we are calling up on these practices which are evil. In my opinion, they've just used the Bible as a justification to do evil, just control and power, really. so I don't know. Do, do you have an opinion on that? If people are saying, uh, oh, you know, oh, unorthodox is unfair and it's going to make people anti-Semitic, that, it makes me quite angry that people think that because they should actually just be anti the Haredi community for the reasons that you are stating. That's my, that's my two cents on it. Mm, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. Uh, but we, we have had a lot of people from the wider Jewish community who were very... Um, I mean, I, I've even had a meeting with board of deputies um, and people from there saying to us like, oh, you shouldn't be the one calling out on the practices that are wrong or evil in the community because it's just going to cause, there's a fear non-Jewish people are going to suddenly see us as bad and it's not going to look good for our image. Evil is evil. It doesn't matter what it looks like or where it's found, really. When they tell you that you shouldn't be calling it out because we might somehow be associated, the, the best way for us secular Jewish people to not be associated with it is by us calling it out and saying we are not them. When people leave the community, the treatment that the Haredi community give those people, and a big example of that is people who leave with their children, what they do is they alienate the children, the women, the character that I mostly uh, related to on that um, unorthodox was Esti's mother you know, coming to her own daughter's wedding and finding out the narrative that her daughter's been given about her, that she's abandoned her child when actually they filed 
for, you know, full custody and completely alienated and kept Esty away from her own birth mother. Yeah. And that is something that I experienced myself and the community will do everything. Yeah. Um, recently, they had a Save the Children campaign. Um, there's a woman we're supporting. She just wants to live in the wider Jewish community, put her children into Jewish schools, but not Haredi schools. She doesn't want to live, yeah. you know, with those restrictions and that lifestyle. And the community have set, you know, set up a campaign to raise thousands and thousands of pounds to pay barristers and solicitors to fight for her ex-husband to make sure that he has full custody of the children because she's not seen as a suitable parent because she's not religious anymore. Um, they will get community members to speak to the children, make them do, say false allegations against the parent who is leaving the Haredi community. Um, and unfortunately for me, my parents colluded with my ex-husband in being involved in that court battle. They didn't support me, mm. they supported him. That was like, unfortunately for me, that was the end of that relationship. We should get back on track then onto your life. So you got married, you had some children. Yeah, so I got pregnant six weeks after my wedding. Mm. Uh, looking back, I had no idea how young I was. Mm. Um, I was only 21 when my daughter was born. And by the time I was 29, I had five children. Um, and I think that was when I started to feel increasingly unhappy. Um, I also was, I, I did a degree um, and I did a master's through the Open University mm. while I was sort of having my children. Um, there was something, I guess, inside of me that was always interested about the outside world. And as the internet was kind of becoming a bit, you know, there was um, kind of expanding, there was more stuff online. Mm. Um, I was just more interested. I thought it was banned, the internet, uh, in, in the Haredi communities. It was, it was. I was, I guess that's where I was rebellious. Um, I just thought eventually I got Wi-Fi in the house. My husband had no knowledge of it. He had no knowledge of the Wi-Fi in the house. No knowledge. Well, to my advantage, my English, I, I dealt with all the bills and the, how, you know, I kind of. How did you get the person to come over and do it all? Or did you, did you, did you do it yourself? I think it was talk talk. They sent me the box and the post and I, there was this cupboard with our meter readings. So I just kind of plugged it in there and I was just like, I don't even think he asked me, but I remember thinking, like, oh, I'll just say something to do with electricity because I did all the meter readings. Oh I sorted God. all of that out, all the bill, everything. So that was quite good. It gave me a window to another world um, outside of that community. And I think that mm. you may, as you grow older and later in my twenties, you just realize that there's a, yeah, there's, a, there's something else outside. And then I started questioning, well, you know, like teaching Shakespeare and I was in a Haredi school where we were not allowed to teach Romeo and Juliet. All the texts that I taught had to be, um, what do you call it, checked through, right. you know, by other communities. So why, what, you know, what's wrong? Why are we hiding knowledge from the kids? How long does it take to start thinking, right, I'm, I'm, out, I'm out of this? I think the, the thought was always there. I remember when I had my third child, a friend of mine was divorced and I remember feeling really jealous of her, which was really strange. Mm. And I just researched into kind of what was kind of support out there for women in, you know, um, wanting to leave their marriage. I found Jewish Women's Aid. They gave me the idea that it's possible. I think my marriage at the same time became even more unbearable mm. because it felt like I don't have to be putting up with all this. You had a choice. Yes. Yeah. Was part of you sad about what it would, uh, how it would hurt him or that you would miss him or anything like that? Before we separated and, you know, the couple of nights before he left, he was really in tears and really, it was, it was hard. It was, and there was a sense of feeling sorry, but I also knew that I had given everything and it was all at my expense and my misery that I'd given. Yeah. And it was just a sense of, well, you know, you have one life to live and, uh, hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, I just had to 
feel like it felt like this is a decision I had to make for me. Um, I had to separate first and my husband refused to leave the house. <laughs> he was like, I'm staying here. Uh, and if anything, you're going to leave the house and leave the kids behind. Okay. Um, and I, obviously I, I couldn't, that was not going to happen. Um, so we, I had a very kind rabbi who supported me at that point. And like I said, I was still very religious. I just wanted to get divorced. Um, it was only after I got divorced that I started thinking, well, what kind of life do I want for myself and my children that I realized I kind of started moving out of the Haredi community. Two years, Andrew, I was stuck in a custody battle, um, trying to find and sort of think about a life outside of the community because it just became basically untenable. Like I'll give you an example. I was working in a Haredi school as a teacher um, and I was basically asked to leave my job. I'd worked there as head of English department for five years. You know, overnight I'd become this terrible woman who was doing terrible things. And what, what was the situation then with your children? So um, I was lucky. Um, the courts, you know, the courts um, obviously um, supported my decisions. Um, they supported my application. So the children were able to live with me. It's, it's this sense of my children not even knowing what could have been. That's so funny. You must look at them every day and think like, you you know, how, how lucky <laughs> it is that they don't have to grow up in that world. Well, I don't think about it every day. I think there's some things we don't, but I do. No, no, no. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's definitely there. Oh, it's, it's there. It's absolutely there in the background of that sense of um, my son is studying for his A-levels now and knowing that he would be in a completely different place mm. had I not left um, is, is there, of course. Absolutely. When you when you left, did you did you remain in a more secular version of the Jewish community? Do you do you remain to this day uh, religious in any way? Um, I call myself traditional, um, you know, like we'll do the Friday night dinner mm -hmm. or the Chagim, we'd celebrate, but it's in no way like religious space. Like, I feel like it's very much cultural, you know, like perhaps something similar to how you grew up, mm -hmm. you know, your Jewish identity is part of who you are, but it's a very cultural rather than based on any religious beliefs. Okay. That's nice. And, uh, yeah, when you first left, so you were, you were free, you were going to be less religious, but still part of the community what what was it like for you were you scared out in this world i think a lot of the struggles has been kind of to adjusting to kind of um working in a secular environment um it's it is a sense like going into a new country really and trying to learn a new culture really so what have you got any examples like something that we wouldn't even think of that for you was quite new and fresh and weird i went to a job interview um it was very soon after i'd left the Haredi community now in the Haredi community you dress you know, there's the standard dress of, you know, covered up and everything. So it was me experimenting and I kind of, so I was wearing these trousers or jeans now, I know they were, and I didn't even think that you don't know the difference between oh. what is formal wear, informal wear. So I went to a job interview wearing jeans and it's like flimsy, not even t-shirt, but like, I'm not even thinking about it. And then um, I didn't get the job and um, I just thought, like as an afterthought to ask the head teacher why it was that. And he just was that, on the phone, he was like, but you, did you even realize like, something like a really like angry tone? You dress completely inappropriately. Like that's, we can't employ you like that, you know, like, and it was like that, like, it was like somebody had hit me on the, like slapped wow. me on the face. Like, oh my God, like, uh, and then obviously I went out shopping and it was <laughs> like, I bought myself more clothes and it's been, you know, obviously that, that, that kind of like lesson that I learned the hard way really, because I, I had no idea. That's incredible. Did you explain to this angry person why you weren't aware of that? 
No, I didn't. I, I didn't even know what to make of it. I was really upset like, over something so stupid. Like, like this is ridiculous. No. Um, how could I have not have known, like, no. the obvious? But I didn't, Of course you know? not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe if I would have been a bit smarter, I looked around a bit better. But it's all these things that I've constantly got to look around and think, okay, so that, you know, like, you know, mm. what's normal, what's not normal. I'm always feeling like I'm just still learning to some extent. How often, if ever, do you speak to your parents? Well, strangely enough, I actually got in touch with my sister last week for the first time in 10 years. Mm. Um, she was just a teenager when I left. Um, so very strange experience. She's now married with three children and the same age as I was when I uh, separated from my husband. She would like me to contact my parents, but for me personally, it's, I, I've got this inner struggle. I, I yeah. just don't know. I, I don't want to be, you know, I, I need to kind of well, accept in a sense, but how do you accept it? And if it's going to be, you want to have a relationship with someone, you want it to be positive, but can it be, mm -hmm. you know? So there's a lot of, it's, it's obviously quite complex. <laughs> I think all of us grow up with this uh, feeling of wanting to impress our parents and our siblings and for them to be proud of us. So is that very difficult for you, I suppose, knowing that nothing you ever do in this world can impress and make them proud? Absolutely, absolutely. They, like to them, I let them down completely. Like the good door, like, like almost like my sister, the way she was talking about me in the past, like she'd idolized me. She's, I was perfect in her eyes, you know, doing all the right things. And then suddenly like something went, like almost like they see like I had a mental breakdown or something, you know, like what happened to that person? And the way they see me now, I think for my sister, she's coming to terms with it. She's like asking me about my job and asking me to try and get a sense of what my life is like. So she's, you know, you know, torn, I think. But there's always that sense of like, but, you know, I left that. I'm living a secular life. So, yeah, you're never going to be in their eyes, you know. Um, and that, that's something difficult for both of us, I think, as well, both of us, really. How, when did you last speak to your parents? Um, yeah, it was it was... 10 years ago, 10 years now. Oh. Yeah. What would happen if you called them up now? Well, I know my mother is trying to get in touch with me because she contacted somebody that I know and left this whole, uh, like, sort of wanting this woman to give this message to me, updating me and letting me know that she really is eager. And now my sister's obviously telling me, and my mother's been completely heartbroken. Like, she actually watched my mum breaking down in actual tears. Like, I, I lost my daughter. Like, almost like as if a child of hers died. And, you know, I, I suddenly, like, recognise her pain, mm. but also that sense of, but you weren't there for me and you betrayed me and, you know, you caused this. Um, so a conversation with her it would probably be very stilted and awkward. Mm. Um I don't know. I don't know, Andrew. I, I just, I don't even have the answers. <laughs> Maybe one day. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Older and wiser and just kind of able to kind of be like, well, what they did is on them um, and just kind of have the moral high ground. Did you remarry them? No, I mean, I don't think, uh, I don't know if I would ever get married again. Okay. <laughs> But no, I would definitely, you know, getting into a relationship of my choosing and on my terms. Would you go on the on the apps? Definitely, yeah. Maybe you can recommend some, Andrew. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll need to go on these single mom groups and say, right, guys, <laughs> which ones work? You know. Let, let me ask but, you. Uh, this is uh, I don't again. I don't mean to be glib or anything, but would would you go on J Date, which for people who don't know is the is the Jewish uh, dating app? Um. Yeah, 
yes, I think I, I don't think I would narrow myself down to that, mm-hmm. but I would definitely, um, yeah, consider that. Okay. Um, you know, maybe sometimes the shared background, you know, might help. But from what I've seen, from just seeing people who have left the community, like myself, there's been equally successful relationships. People with Jewish, non-Jewish, yeah. and I think sometimes I've, my conclusion is kind of like it's down to the person. You know, if you connect to someone, but I would definitely, I'm definitely open to try that. You started up Gesha EU. So what's what's the story? I just had a sense that there must be people out there who, you know, like me, wanting to live a different life. But there was that sense, there was no support. There was Jewish charities like Jewish Women's Aid, um, you know, who were very helpful, even Norwoods, who supported me with my children. Um, I also paid, went on a trip to New York and um, found this organization called Footsteps. Um, and for the first time met lots of people like me who had been through the community. Um, and it was absolutely exhilarating. It was like all these people who like got me and understood me and had similar stories to me. And there was that sense of, we have to have something here in the UK and why isn't there something in the UK? Um, we had our first meeting in December, 2012. 30 people showed up um, and it was literally from there. Um, And I think mainly the thing is when you leave that community of support, you lose your friends, you lose your family, you lose all those connections that you take for granted growing up. You, you know, um, so Gesher kind of aims to replace a lot of that. Um, And also some of the basic things like helping, you know, with education or navigating the court process, you know, people leaving a community where, you don't know much about the outside world, telling people that how to dress for an interview. Um, so, you know, if, whatever it is that, that, you know, so that they have that support, that network there for them. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I like the idea that there's somebody a little bit like you uh, 10 years ago or how you were, you know, in the community now with uh, Wi-Fi secretly installed who's watching this conversation and, <laughs> and thinking, oh, I better go to Gesha EU now and... Maybe that's the way I kind of deal with what the kind of anger. And I think when I was finished with all of the process of leaving, it was almost like, I know why people don't leave because it's so damn difficult. Mm -hmm. It really, really is. Like it comes at you from all angles. And I knew it would be very, very difficult, but I don't think I realized, I mean, just go, it's like, it's, it's traumatic. Like I I haven't even like been able to, we need a longer, another video to talk about all the, the, you know, the challenges that, you know, from financial to, practical to you know fear of losing your children and um everything that's taken from you and the way the community will do everything to make sure that you fail that you do, you're not successful you know my dad was like you're going to end up in a mental institution that's and that and, and you know you do like I, I consider myself a strong woman mentally strong and those moments of like you just you, you know they do that they really do that um and whatever their reasons they probably don't want people to leave so that kind of being able to resolve that um, through the charity, maybe there's that part of it where you feel like, well, nobody should go through what I had to go through. Well, they are going to, but maybe let's make sure that it's not as as difficult. Yeah, uh, you know that they're not doing it alone. Um, so I think that's the motivation. I think in any case. So, last question here: Do you miss being part of the community, and and if so, what do you miss? Um, I mean, yeah, like talking to my sister, um, and, and I know that somewhere, you know, it does, there's, there's, there's the losses there, you know, um, this, whether it's the songs or the, 
the bits of it that we did enjoy, like being together as a family, um, you know, but there's also that sense of like, but I, I, I can't go back there, you know, wow. I, I'm living in the present. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, yeah. And it sounds like you're doing a good job of living in this, this present. I'm happy you're on our side now. <laughs> uh, no regrets, definitely. If you listened this far, it leads me to believe you're interested in this kind of content, in which case please do subscribe on the podcast app, leave a review, uh, a good one hopefully. Also go subscribe to my YouTube page for the video version where you'll find photos of Emily from when she was in the community. Uh, It was fascinating speaking to her. She's a really lovely, wonderful person. I even went to see her in her house uh, and she welcomed me in and she was very nice. Uh, And please do visit geshaeu.org.uk. If you're looking to find my YouTube page, by the way, which is not always that easy, I'll be linking to it on andrewgold underscore ok on Twitter. It's the same as my Instagram handle. Uh, That's a lot of social media pages, but if you get to Twitter, andrewgold underscore ok, you'll find about a bazillion links to the YouTube page and to this very podcast, which you're already on. Uh, so that won't be of much use to you. See you next week when I'll be with Justin Hall, the first ever blogger. And he had a fight with Kurt Vonnegut, the writer. And it's one hell of a story. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.